the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is an interview with Professor Virginia Mantuvalu on structural injustice and workers' rights, and it's based around an upcoming book of hers by the said name, which will be out early next year. I was fortunate enough to get an early draft of that, and this interview is essentially exploring the argument of the book, which looks at how workers in modern economies can find themselves at a disadvantage or at risk of exploitation on the basis of not just market forces, but government regulations and rules on the market, which on their face can seem neutral or even positive, and she looks at human rights, both as theory and practice, as a way we can think about and potentially remedy those situations. Um, Virginia Mantovalu is Professor of Human Rights and Labour Law at University College London. She's also a member of the editorial committee of the Modern Law Services Review, and was previously joint editor of Current Legal Problems. She's also, as comes out a little in this conversation, has worked as a specialist advisor to the UK Joint Committee on Human Rights, and as a consultant for projects for the International Labour Organisation. She is also on the management board of Callianne, which is an organisation working on the rights of domestic migrant workers, on the Equal Rights Trust, and she's on the executive committee of the Institute for Employment Rights. So a really great, very, very well qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about guest, um, who I'm excited to bring to you. Um, I think we set up the topics in the interview, so I'm not going to say any more than that. Let's just get straight to it. Apart from, as always, and I feel like I could say this bit, you know, sort of seared in my brain, I say it at the beginning of every episode, but if you do enjoy these interviews or the other types of content uh, that I put out on this channel, consider sponsoring us on Patreon. So I produce all of this content for free and advertisement free. You know, I don't interrupt it to do a product sponsorship or play an ad or anything like that. The trade-off for that is, at the beginning of every episode, I nag you all to sponsor me. So, if you have watched a few of these, if it's something you regularly or semi-regularly listen to and enjoy, please do consider sponsoring it. And you can do that really at whatever level you like. There's sort of no minimum, no maximum. I've been suggesting $2 or £2. They're pretty much the same thing now an episode. Um, so sort of the price of a cup of coffee, essentially. So if this episode is as stimulating and invigorating as a coffee, consider giving it the same sort of monetary compensation. Um, find out how to do that at patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. Everything else, all the episodes, links, ways to follow on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. Big thank you, as always, to 
everyone who does sponsor the show. You're terrific. You're making it possible. And if you want to support the show but aren't able to financially, then sharing episodes on your own social media or recommending to friends is also something that's really great and really appreciated. Um, Yep, that's my plug for support. Let's get straight to it. This is Structural Injustice and Workers' Rights. I am joined today by Professor Virginia Mantovalu. Professor, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be discussing with you. Great. So just as a super quick introduction, um, what what do you work on? What are some of the things you like to write and teach and think about? I'm a professor of human rights and labor law at UCL in the law faculty. And uh, over the years, I've worked on... Um, uh, the rights of uh, migrant workers, migrant domestic workers, the right to privacy, um, structural injustice, uh, the concept of exploitation, uh, um, workers' rights more broadly, workers' rights and and human rights. Uh, These are the main issues I work on. In this uh, latest book that I finished, uh, this is called Structural Injustice and Workers' Rights, and it has been funded through a British Academy Mid-Career Fellowship. Uh, so this is about to be published. It will be published in a couple of months. Mm. And you you sent me a sort of sneak peek, as it were, of the early drafts in that slightly weird chapter-by-chapter double-spaced thing that Oxford University Press insists on. <laughs> Sorry about this, yes. <laughs> no, I'm... I'm joking because I did a similar thing recently and I was like why are they in are they editing it by hand or something but anyway (laughs) so what are the what are the central like problems or issues that this book uh seeks to address so I in this book I focus on uh, some of the most disadvantaged workers in society I examined legal rules uh, that regulate labor that regulate work, and uh, I examine how some legal rules set up the conditions, the background conditions for disadvantaged people to be exploited at work. This is what I do. I examine how some legal rules create vulnerability of workers um, uh, who are then systematically exploited. What is a what I found particularly interesting is that these are not rules that are prima facie illegal or immoral, problematic immoral. Um, uh, They have an appearance of legitimacy, and I will explain later with a few examples what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. However, what we observe is that this uh, legislation, in examples that we can discuss, Um, uh, creates vulnerability of workers to exploitation, and these workers are then uh, systematically exploited by employers. And uh, through this, both the employers and um, national economies uh, economies and societies at large benefit uh, from this situation. 
So this is what I do in this book. And I can give you a few examples. Yeah, let's do an example. Um, an obvious example, I think an obvious starting point, I guess, of uh, legal rules that uh, have an appearance of legitimacy, but uh, which create workers' vulnerability, are immigration rules, uh, and particularly the most restrictive immigration rules. Uh, a typical example are temporary visas. A good example in that respect is the UK, a uh, more practical example, the UK overseas domestic worker visa, which is a visa that uh, we have had in the UK, a scheme that we have had in the UK since 2012, 10 years now. And this effectively ties the workers to the employer with whom they arrived in the country. So we have thousands of migrant domestic workers who arrive in the UK with this visa every year. And these workers um, cannot, in, in the past, could never change employer. Now they can, but in extremely few circumstances, they cannot change employer, even if they are exploited and abused. So if they change employer, they become undocumented, which uh, creates further problems. They are uh, then exploited even more. So this is an example of legal rules, immigration rules, with an appearance of legitimacy, but which create vulnerability because they make workers too scared to leave their employers. Another example is, uh, it's uh, been a lot in the news lately, is uh, workers in agriculture. Here in the UK, we've had, we have labor shortages now. Uh, after Brexit and in the context of COVID as well. And uh, we have a new scheme for migrant workers, a temporary seasonal worker visa. And what we see in the first uh, three years, I think, that we have had this scheme is that uh, there, are, there is evidence showing that because there are restrictions uh, in uh, the right to change employer there again, but also in the time that these workers can spend in the country, we see that these workers, there is already evidence that these workers are exploited, including some allegations of serious labor exploitation. So immigration law is uh, immigration rules. We say that they, I said that they have an appearance of legitimacy because governments say, you know, this is our sovereignty, it is our right to regulate borders. This is true, but what we see is that uh, at times, particularly restrictive schemes um, create vulnerability that is then systematically exploited in the case of migrant workers. There are other examples that I also discuss in the book. So in my book, I talk about, I, I talk about migrant workers. I talk about what I call captive workers, which are people who are either those who work while being incarcerated, working prisoners, um, uh, those who are offend offenders who are sentenced to unpaid work requirements in the community, and immigration detainees who work while in immig immigration detention. All these categories of workers, captive workers, are again exempted from protective employment rules. They don't have a right to a minimum wage for the work that they do. Um, they don't have protection of working time. They don't uh, have social, social security rights. They don't have trade union rights. These are often very restricted. So this is another category of workers uh, where we observe this phenomenon. 
Then um, I also examine people who are forced into exploitative, in, into very precarious work because uh, they, uh, through welfare conditionality schemes, through so through schemes that make welfare benefits conditional upon looking for work. And we observe that in many countries, the UK unfortunately is one of the, has one of the harshest, harshest schemes. We observe that in countries such as the UK, uh, people are forced into jobs that they don't want to take because they are very insecure and precarious jobs. But uh, they are forced into these jobs because otherwise uh, they, um, the, the authorities impose very harsh sanctions on them. They remove all welfare benefits and they are faced with destitution. So we see that all these legal rules have an appearance of legitimacy again, you know, because we say that um, uh, people should be looking for work, uh, work is good for them, uh, work is the best way out of poverty, says the, say, governments uh, typically, and many of us will agree with that. But then when we have such very strict and punitive uh, schemes with such harsh sanctions, uh, that push people into very bad jobs, we should start questioning very, very closely, scrutinizing very, very closely the supposed legitimacy of these rules. These are some of the examples that I discuss in this book, and there are others. Yeah, one that occurs to me is in the US case, um, unemployment benefits, you lose them if you refuse to accept a job, but you're allowed to turn down jobs based on your prior earnings. So it's something like 80% of your prior earnings. So in the US, if I earned $100,000 a year and became unemployed, I'd be allowed to turn down a job for 50. Mm -hmm. But if my last job had been for 40, I wouldn't be allowed to turn down the job for 50. So it discriminates on the way in almost. Like it says, listen, you can have you can have a long job search oh and by the way we'll give you more unemployment insurance if you left a high paying job but if you're leaving a low paying job you'll not only get less unemployment insurance but you'll have to accept another low paying job if you don't want that benefit to be cut so like you can you, you can sort of see the logic of it like yeah we give people a percentage of their old salary and yeah they should have to take a job you can see where it came from but the effect is if you're poor going in you're poor going out um you know that that yeah. was the example that came to mind from... yeah, and this uh, really resonates and i'm thinking that also typically the very restrictive visa schemes for instance they, we have them for the poorest workers, the most disadvantaged workers, yeah. the most difficult, the, the most challenging, dangerous jobs, uh, and not for the high-paid jobs and, uh, you know, the most qualified, well, most, the workers with the highest qualifications and university degrees and everything. Uh, the, for them, uh, the visa schemes that we have are much more liberal. So, yeah, what we, this is exactly what we observe then uh, through these examples, that... Uh, these are all rules with an appearance of legitimacy. They don't appear immoral at first glance, at least. But then what we see is that people who are the most disadvantaged become even more disadvantaged, while those who are most advantaged 
they become more and more, uh, they, they benefit from this situation. Hmm. This is, uh, this is exactly the point. Um, so just as a big picture issue, you use the word systematic a few times and you make the claim in the book that we can't conceptualize this as isolated incidents, as sort of quote unquote, a few mm. bad apples or like the occasional employer behaving immorally and exploiting people. We have to understand it as, well, systematic. Um, I know this seems obvious, but like, can you explain that distinction in simple terms and like why it matters? Yeah, the reason why I, I started thinking about this is that uh, in the UK, for instance, we have had since to, uh, 2012, 13 discussions about the Modern Slavery Act. Mm. The UK government, uh, Theresa May as Home Secretary, later on as Prime Minister, she was incredibly committed to tackling what is called modern slavery, very severe labor exploitation. And the way that the government said that they are going to do it is through criminalizing employers. So we're going to find the employers who are so nasty and they treat workers in such a bad way, and we're going to imprison them. To, to imprison them, well, we will have they will have very hard, you know very they will serve a long time in prison. They're going to we're going to impose very uh, high fines to them, very serious fines to them, etc. So. Instead, so they focused on individual responsibility of bad employers. There's no question that there are some bad employers. I mean, there are no question there are some bad people, you know. But the problem in uh, the examples in the, when we think about workplace exploitation, the problem is, is much more, is much deeper. And I think we need to look at what is the source of the vulnerability to exploitation, instead of trying to identify some bad employers who, who want to take advantage of uh, workers who may be weak, vulnerable, uh, poor, etc., it's important to understand why these workers may be weak and vulnerable and poor. So in order to do that, uh, so that, that's why I say it's not an issue of a few bad apples, but it's an issue, it's a more systematic issue, it's an issue that has to do with the source uh, of the vulnerability to exploitation. And in this, uh, there are other sources of structural injustice. There, there, there are other sources of structural injustice. There is no question about that. But in this specific project, I decided to look at concrete, uh, identifiable legal rules uh, that create systematic disadvantage, that create systematic vulnerability of workers, um, uh, of which employers take advantage. So we may criminalize the, we may criminalize some individual employers who are, who are very bad. Yes, that's that's okay. But it's distracting to only do that. And um, what we should be doing is changing the laws, changing the legislation, changing the legal rules that uh, set up the background conditions for workers to be exploited. Um, during the discussions of the Modern uh, Slavery Act uh, in the UK, I was struck because uh, a lot of people that gave evidence to very, including myself, to parliamentary committees uh, uh, looking at the legislation that, at, that was going to be enacted, we said, look, the problem is not only, you know, the, the individual employers, you have to change uh, the UK overseas domestic worker visa. 
because this is the reason why migrant domestic workers, for instance, are so vulnerable and are systematically exploited. We said this in Parliament and in writing, orally and everything, but we were ignored. This is why I say that we should be looking at the underground and at the underlying conditions and the, at the, that create vulnerability to exploitation rather than just some bad employers. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot to say on the UK immigration system and how that's set up, but maybe we'll we'll return to that just to just to keep developing the argument, though. Um, so in understanding sort of systematic exploitation or systematic disadvantage, you use a framework from Young, Iris Young. Um, could you explain that in sort of simple terms and like why you found it useful for thinking about the problem? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Um... The concept of structural injustice has been uh, developed by several scholars over the years, uh, several uh, leading scholars. Um, I used the young, I liked Young's account very much. I found it uh, thought-provoking and inspiring. Uh, and I think the best way to to explain what Young uh, says uh, is by looking at the example of uh, by by talking about a story that Young developed, and it's a very well-known story by now. The story of Sandy. Sandy, Young says, is a mother of two, a single mother of two, who was forced to move out of her apartment, um, which was part of a central city, central city apartment block, because um, the, the, the building would be converted, uh, converted into condominiums. Mm-hmm. So the building was very old and she had a long commute to work as a sales clerk. She decided then to look for a different apartment, somewhere closer to work. But she realized that it was very expensive to move uh, in that area. Mm-hmm. She spent some money uh, in order to buy a car. She also applied for state support, but she said she had to wait for two years to get any state support. She finally found a small apartment that was a 45-minute drive from work, not very close to work. Her children would have to share a bedroom and she would have to sleep in the living room. She found a very, very small apartment. The, 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 the apartment didn't have a washer or a dryer or there was no playground nearby, but Sandy had no other option and she only had, she had to take this apartment. However, she needed a deposit of three months rent uh, in order to to take the apartment. And that was a standard landlord policy. But she could not afford it because she she had paid for the car that she bought. So Sandy, this uh, fictional uh, person that that, uh, Young is talking about, found herself faced with the prospect of homelessness. What Young wants to do through this story is that... uh, um, she wants to show that the, the, there, can, there are people who are faced, uh, who could, who are faced with uh, um, housing insecurity, serious poverty, uh, but the blame for this injustice cannot be placed on one person. It's not uh, no one in Sandy's story treated her badly, immorally or illegally, Young says. Everyone, her landlord was even uh, nice to her and tried to help her somehow. 
So there's no single individual uh, and no single legal rule, Young says, that led Sandy to find herself in this situation. Um, she was generally treated with uh, decency by everyone with whom she interacted in the, in the context of this story. So, so Young says that it is hard to, to find causal responsibility here for the, uh, for the situation in which Sandy finds her, herself. So, but the, the reason why Young uses this story is that is because she wants to um, shift our attention, people's attention away from individual responsibility. She says, nobody has background responsibility for the, the situation where Sandy is found. Nobody has background responsibility. No state authorities, no individuals, nobody treated her unfairly. They all did what they normally, what people normally do. They even treated her nicely at times. However, she says that everyone, all of us, benefit from this situation. So there are people like Sandy who are systematically disadvantaged. There are many others who, are, who systematically benefit from this situation. And what she wants to show, what, uh, what uh, Young wants to show through this, is that uh, um, uh, we may not be able to identify backward responsibility for Sandy's situation, but still, because we all benefit, we all have a political, forward-looking responsibility to address it. So Young uses the story of Sandy to explain how people may be, may be faced with an injustice for which no one is directly responsible. But because we all benefit from this situation, we all have a forward-looking responsibility and we should all um, uh, take steps to address this injustice. Where I differentiate myself, or what I, what I am doing, is that on the basis of Young's account, I develop what I call state-mediated structures of injustice. Uh, Young, in her account, she does not really look any closely at all uh, at the legal rules that uh, uh, were involved in Sandy's situation. We cannot know whether there are legal rules that really disadvantaged uh, Sandy because this was not uh, Young's, attempt, uh, Young's focus, this was not her point. Uh, but what I am doing through a different story that I, a couple of different stories that I invoke, uh, that I develop in, the, in this book, uh, um, is that I try to identify legal rules, concrete legislation that make people like Sandy, who are, uh, who find themselves in uh, serious poverty, in serious labor, in labor exploitation, and try to see whether we may be able to find backward-looking responsibility, not of any individual, but of the legal rules, whether the state then is responsible for the for this situation of structural injustice. This is why I call it state mediated because of the legal rules that are enacted and that they create vulnerability uh, to workers who are then subject to exploitation. 
Yeah, I mean, that all makes total sense to me. I can follow along with that, all of that argument. Um, I think we're, well, policymakers and to some section, some extent, some section of the electorate is just like so focused on like people gaming the system or people claiming benefits that they're not entitled to that we almost we design these systems as if the primary problem we're trying to solve is benefit fraud or the primary problem we're trying to solve is immigration fraud and it's just not it's just not a big problem um and we end up creating things who's i mean another classic example would be benefits that cut off at a certain income level um so in america you it's, it's not the case that in america you just if you're poor you can't get health care there are government programs that will give you health care if you're poor but they cut off at about like twenty four thousand dollars a year which isn't a huge amount um and what that means is you literally can't take a higher paying job without losing your health care. And I've known people, I've had employees when I was a manager who I want to move them from uh, part time to full time, and they want to go from part time to full time. But we can't because it would take them over that income threshold. They'd lose their health care and they have an underlying health concern, which means that would literally kill them. So it would. And, Anyway, you don't need to address that example, but that's just one that came to my head of like, we are, we are, we, we've created these systems with the idea that the primary function of them is to catch frauds. And I think to some extent, because we enjoy degrading people we see as our social inferiors, but that's another story, as opposed to seeing the problem is to give people options and choices in their life and support them as they pursue them, you know? Anyway, that's an editorial. I agree. And the example that you gave from the US, we have a similar thing in the in UK, in the what we call the uh, universal credit uh, system that we have here. I think there is a threshold. There are people who work 16 hours and mm -hmm. if, they, if they work, I think this is the number, if they work up to 16 hours, they're entitled to some additional benefits. If they work 17 hours, they're not entitled to the benefits anymore. And even though there are people who want to work 17, 18, 19 hours, they don't do this. Um, or they do this and then they're not paid uh, and then they lose their benefits. So they become poorer by working a bit more. Mm -hmm. The rhetoric, uh, what you described, that uh, it's a huge problem, uh, this political rhetoric that we've seen thriving the last uh, at least 10 years, I'd say, that uh, the aim of uh, social security systems is to go after all this uh, lazy, fraudulent people who want to take money and not work. Uh, I find this incredibly troubling. I think people generally are embarrassed uh, to, to seek uh, welfare support because... And also, have you ever interacted with a welfare system in your life? These are the most obtuse, bureaucratic, unpleasant things to... I cannot imagine a worse way to make a living than trying to game welfare systems. They are incredibly unpleasant to deal with and they, they don't give you that much money. Yeah. Like, if you want to be a con artist, there are better marks out there than the welfare state. Yeah, and, and social security law, the social security system is supposed is supposed to, to protect people when they are suffering, when they are poor and vulnerable. 
And what we find instead in countries such as the UK and the US, they have some of the uh, harshest uh, schemes, uh, is that they have just ended up being punitive, punishing people and forcing them in jobs uh, that they don't want to take because they are exploitative jobs. Uh, Move forward in the argument then. Um, I think most people will be with us so far. My audience is pretty lefty. Um, we, you might divide people on the next move because your next move is to say, let's think about this in a legal human rights context. Um, big picture before we get there, and I always ask this question whenever rights come up, um, what are human rights in the simplest possible terms? Uh, um, okay, so uh, human rights are entitlements that are owed to everyone and uh, irrespective of race, gender, etc. So in the simple, uh, in, in, in very simple terms, this is uh, what human rights are. These are entitlements that everyone has, irrespective of their race, uh, gender, and other characteristics. They are grounded and uh, can be grounded and have been grounded by theories on a number of values, uh, so such as dignity, autonomy, liberty, etc. Um, uh, I don't have a specific uh, uh, theoretical account that I necessarily necessarily endorse uh, here. I think, uh, I generally think that uh, rights can be grounded on a variety of values. Uh, so then the next step is uh, how do you define this, each of these values. Uh, on labor rights in particularly, on labor rights as uh, human rights, because I'm, I'm looking at workers uh, in this book, on workers' rights then as human rights, I like the work of Pablo Gilabert, for, Gilabert, for instance, I always find it illuminating, uh, illuminating. and he has uh, developed an account of dignity that is particularly, uh, that, that fits, that, that grounds uh, uh, workers' rights. Uh, but as I said, uh, um, there are other ways to ground human rights, and you can do it on the basis of citizenship, liberty, autonomy, and uh, this can all, if they are, you know, if someone, you know, develops them, they are all serve. They can all serve as moral foundations of uh, rights, and these uh, these moral uh, foundations of rights is what gives them normative force. Okay, so it's generally understood that states have a responsibility to enforce human rights. Why? I think uh, um, um, the the international community adopted the human rights uh, documents mm. uh, documents, uh, particularly in the 20th century after the Second World War. Um, uh, we have uh, some really influential declarations, primarily the Univers Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, um, and we have other documents, treaties that follow the Universal Declaration that contain more concrete uh, instantiations of human rights. We have the International Covenant of, of Civil and Political Rights of the United Nations, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, the European Convention on Human Rights and the European Social Charter regionally in Europe, the American Convention and the American uh, 
protocol, the protocol on uh, economic and social rights, the African Charter of Human Rights. So in the second part of the 20th century, we started seeing uh, a lot of human rights uh, documents being uh, developed and adopted at the international level through the United Nations and the regional level. And uh, these uh, impose on states who have signed up to them often, not always, legally binding obligations. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights specifically does not impose legally binding obligations in the sense that it is a declaration, it's not a legally binding treaty, but it is still hugely influential. So states are bound by some of these treaties, so say the UK is bound by the European Convention on Human Rights because it uh, has signed up to the convention, it has signed up and, under and it, it undertook uh, when it signed up the obligation to respect the rights that are in the convention and later on to follow the rulings of the European Court of Human Rights that monitors the convention. Um, so usually it is because states sign up to specific uh, treaties, specific legal documents. Other times states may have a legal obligation simply by, by virtue of belonging to an organization. So for instance, as I'm working on the workers' rights, labor rights, we have the International Labor Organization, which is the specialist branch of the UN in the area of uh, uh, labor rights. And uh, the, 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 the International Labor Organization has adopted the Declaration of Fundamental Principles and Rights at Work, which includes uh, the right to unionize, the prohibition of forced and child labor, etc. And, uh, and uh, states have an obligation to respect these rights only by virtue of having of being members of the ILO, the International Labour Organization. So states have signed up to these documents, to these human rights documents, in one way or the other, and they have undertaken um, to comply with the standards imposed through the monitoring bodies uh, because they have signed up to them. That's interesting because I think when most people think about state compliance with international human rights law, they're probably imagining a much narrower sort of set of negative obligations and prohibitions on torture, for instance, this this sort of thing, more than a sort of and prohibitions that would leave a fairly assuming the state is not in, say, the practice of regularly torturing people that would the the would leave a fairly overall small footprint in terms of their, their actual impact on the country. Um, but you're pointing to human rights law, which we have signed up for, that would be much more far-reaching than that. Mm. Yes, uh, I mean, I think it is true that mostly when, for instance, the, when the European Convention on Human Rights was adopted, Perhaps the first case, or the first case of the European Court of Human Rights was probably about imposing negative obligations to state authorities. About saying it was about saying yes, you cannot torture people, you cannot restrict people's freedom of expression, you cannot dismantle trade unions or or, or things like that. But over the, the last few decades. Monitoring bodies, courts, and other bodies have developed a long 
case law and the range of other materials uh, that analyze positive obligations of states. So they impose positive obligations of states to, to, to protect people's rights um, and a broader range of obligations. I should say that yeah, I mentioned the European Convention on Human Rights, but we also have social rights documents. I mentioned earlier the European Social Charter, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. These include rights to work, rights to housing, rights to social security. All these they may impose some negative obligations not to evict people, but they also impose obligations to support people to have housing, uh, obligations to support people to have work, uh, etc. So you are right that a, a traditional account and in some legal orders, uh, possibly in the US, when people think of rights, they think about negative obligations not to torture, etc. But over the years in many legal orders across the world, We've had, we have a long uh, case law that imposes on state authorities positive obligations as well. So let me try and connect that back to the other half of the conversation, just for my understanding, if nothing else. So let's combine that with Young's account of structural injustice that we discussed. So we have um, uh, a woman who really, through no fault of her own, is facing homelessness and really at no point in that story was there a choice she could have made that would have gotten her off that path but no individual person acted illegally in it you could still make the claim that her human rights have been violated i think i'm far from an expert on this part but like there are documents that speak to human rights to shelter and stuff like that. Um, so we have a situation in which we have a human rights violation that the state has an obligation to address because it's signed up to agreements or charters or whatever that say it takes on that obligation, but in which no one individual is really to blame or to be held accountable. Is that would that characterize your view? I will explain a little bit more, yes, because earlier I said that young in Young's story, in the story of Sandy, we don't really know what are the legal rules that led to her situation because Young does not explain, does not, it's not her focus to talk about the legal rules that uh, led Sandy to, 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 to homelessness. By using other stories and the examples that I mentioned earlier, migrant workers, captive workers, workers forced into precarious work through welfare conditionality schemes and other and other precarious workers. What I do in the book is that I talk about specific specific laws. So, for instance. If I say that you know, someone is in prison for 20 years and uh, that person um, is a uh, required to work while they are in prison. It's not part of the sentence, but they are required to work because, you know, because they are required to work uh, while in prison. We think work is good for prisoners. Uh, um, the Howard League for Penal Reform thinks that uh, work, the main UK charity, in the, the oldest UK charity in the area, think that work is good for prisoners. Um, we know that work is good for prisoners who, who, who are in prison for many years and they have nothing else to do. 
However, we also know that there are legal rules that exclude working prisoners from minimum wage. They are paid one pound per hour and a, a maximum of 10 pounds a week. This is where I think state responsibility uh, arises, state responsibility for human rights violations. When structural injustice is what I call state mediated, where, where we can identify state action that uh, creates vulnerability. In the case of working prisoners, we know that either the state or even private employers very often and private entities benefit from this situation. They, they get prisoners to do work that no one else wants to do. Last year, the UK government was proposing that we use the prisoners to cover some Brexit-related uh, labor shortages. We get prisoners to do this work. And the reason why we have an injustice that is state-mediated is because we have concrete legislation in the UK that excludes uh, working prisoners from, um, from uh, a right to a minimum wage. Um, uh, they, in many legal orders, working prisoners cannot unionize. Um, so, there are legal rules that permit prisoners to work, and that's fine. But then again, and that's good, also positive for prisoners, but then again we have legal rules that exclude them from a lot of labor law protections. And this is where I think uh, we can say clearly that uh, uh, state responsibility can arise uh, for possible human rights violations when you have uh, people required to work, but being unpaid or very badly paid for the work that they do. And this is not only this is not only for working prisoners, but also, as I said earlier, immigration detainees and others. That seems like a reason, like a clear case to me. I want to push this a bit, though. Um, what about cases like we discussed where there's like a cutoff point to um, a, a particular payment or form of support or something and say it's quite serious. Like if you go above a certain point, you lose your health care or some other significant form of support that you need. And let, let's just say that in Sandy's case, one of the things that's making her situation bad is that she's at some cutoff point like that, just say. Would that count as a state-mediated injustice? Could we impose a positive obligation on the state there? Because I think the, the prisoner wants more of a slam dunk, like that's clear, you know, you're holding these people, there's certain minimum standards of how you treat them. What about if it's more like a rule that the government has imposed is perhaps completely unintentionally contributing to people not having choices and staying in poverty? Yeah, no, these are all great questions, and you make me think a lot, thank you. Um, yeah, so, yeah, first of all, human rights law, as, as the reason why we started talking about human rights law is because in this uh, book that I finished, in the last couple of chapters, I try to consider whether and the extent to which we can use human rights law to uh, impose uh, responsibilities on the state uh, to identify. Yeah, so just just to clarify, that's my question: is in the scenario I outlined, can we leverage 
either as a moral claim or a concrete legal one? Can we leverage human rights? Is, is, is there a human rights claim in that situation? Or is it more a claim merely about the efficacy of that government program? Sorry, go on. Yeah, definitely. I think that in certain cases uh, that are, you know, there, I think that even with um, instances of welfare, in, in examples of welfare conditionality, I am sure that we can identify cases that are so clearly, and um, where people have uh, been uh, treated so clearly and fairly that they can bring uh, um, claims of human rights violations and they can succeed. We have a recent, relatively recent case of the German Constitutional Court, where the Constitutional Court of uh, the, the Constitutional Court of Germany found that certain uh, German welfare conditionality rules were were so harsh that they violated their right to dignity and other rights in the German Constitution. You are right that not all welfare claimants, welfare support claimants, even if they're treated unfairly, not all of them can succeed in challenging uh, their treatment through human rights law. There is no question that human rights law cannot address all instances of structural injustice. We can say that uh, um, the treatment of some uh, welfare claimant is unjust, but still, we may know that uh, there's no reason that they can succeed in court in challenging their treatment. Uh, and that's a re one reason why I think it's important to be strategic. Uh, um, uh, and lawyers, there are lawyers and there are organizations, uh, uh, charities and trade unions who are strategic uh, about choosing uh, which cases they will bring because they can strategically decide that they will bring the case of someone who are very clearly who is very clearly treated very harshly and wrongly and unfairly and through this individual case that they can choose which is a good case for in, in terms of you know uh, what it can achieve they can challenge the legal rules as a whole um yeah so just to return to what you asked, uh, yes, there's no question we cannot use human rights law. Human rights law cannot be used to address all instances of structural injustice, but it can be used uh, and it has been used and it's regularly used strategically in order to address some of the worst, some very bad cases. And this can then uh, have a broader, lead to broader cultural and uh, st structural change. I, I, and I should also add here that one of the reasons why I'm looking at human rights law is because uh, as a lawyer in background, as a, as a law academic in background, I would like, I wanted to see how we can use the, the law, not just for ill, for bad uh, things like creating vulnerability of workers, but also I wanted to see how we can try to use the law in order to help workers uh, who are disadvantaged, who may be under-unionized, who may not be represented in politics, uh, like migrant workers, working prisoners and others. And I wanted to think how these most vulnerable and excluded workers who don't have a voice mm. can be helped by, by using human rights law. Okay, I'm going to keep going with this because I think this is interesting. Okay, so I think I, there's two different questions here. And you've, well, here's, here's one question. What can human rights 
law as it actually exists be used for and in what circumstances can it be used to protect people you know who are being structurally exploited right um there's a second question which is what what ought it to be because i mean well you may disagree with this but on my view human rights inventions are human constructions these are things we've invented they can be changed we can agree to different things. We can get rid of them all together and put some, you know what I mean? Like, like, and rights are change and are contested and develop over time, all the time, and in all sorts of different circumstances. So leaving aside for a minute the question of what is, you know, as human rights law currently exists and the treaty and charter obligations we've signed up to, what could that actually be leveraged to do? If we were being a bit more utopian, what, what, ought human rights to be. It, it, so in other words, one can imagine a legal international order in which if someone has become homeless, irrespective of the cause, a human right has been violated. And the state has a obligation, if the state is allowing people to become homeless, it is committing human rights violations in much the way as if someone has been tortured, there's a human rights violation. And there is an obligation on states to, um, to, to, to remedy that. Now, I can think of all sorts of objections to that view, um, and maybe we'll return to that. But to make maybe the positive case, I would say, let me develop an argument. OK, well, here we go. I would say the analogy with torture is instructive, that sleeping on the street in extreme weather, extreme heat or extreme cold, may cause physical pain every bit as bad as practices we would rightly consider torture that say certainly having an untreated illness because you can't afford health care may cause physical pain every bit as bad as something we would recognize as torture and you'll say okay but in one case someone is actively doing it to you and i think when you consider all of the structural stuff i think there's a gap clearly but it might not be as big as a gap as we think like, that was, this is a very long-winded question, I apologise, but um, should we maybe think about homelessness or extreme poverty or lack of health care just really more or less in the same category we would think of torture? Like, I'm not talking what is, but what ought to be. Definitely. So you're you're not disagreeing with me. I thought you were about, you were disagreeing with me. Uh, we definitely should and even courts have done this uh, Toby so you mentioned homelessness and torture and you drew a parallel between homelessness and torture there's a case of the UK Supreme Court it was called House of Lords when it was called House of Lords Limbuela Tessema and Adam which was about some asylum seekers from whom all social su social support was withdrawn at the time early 2000 I think and uh, they found themselves homeless, destitute, homeless. And the UK uh, House of Lords, the Supreme, Supreme Court now, said that uh, in that case, the withdrawal of all social support from uh, asylum seekers, because for the reason that they, they did not apply for asylum as soon as they arrived in the UK, um, uh, violates Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the Human Rights Act, um, uh, 
which uh, prohibits uh, torture and human and degrading treatment. That's just one example of a case where homelessness and uh, destitution has uh, been ruled to be a violation of the prohibition of inhuman and degrading treatment. So yes, you are very right to say that uh, there's no clear separation between the, the more traditional, what some people might describe as liberal rights, um, and uh, what uh, are known over the, the, the last few decades as a social rights, such as the right to housing, uh, and even courts, but other and other monitoring bodies as well, when they look at poverty, often they examine a, a range of human rights violations that may stem from poverty. Mm. Um, uh, yes, so uh, the same with healthcare. The same with healthcare. You mentioned healthcare. There is a very famous case of the uh, um, Constitutional Court of South Africa on whether someone should be entitled to continuous health healthcare support even when he was seriously ill. These are very difficult questions, of course, for courts to handle. And uh, in the South African case, the, the claimant lost the case for reasons I'm not going to go into now. But yeah, the point is that yeah, courts and other bodies that monitor compliance with human rights law um, um, do examine these issues. They no longer across the world, possibly not everywhere, but in many countries and many supranational organizations, they examine uh, issues of, say, poverty, exploitation, etc., uh, alongside more traditional uh, civil and political rights, like the prohibition of torture, freedom of expression. And they are faced with very difficult questions. Sometimes uh, they rule that there is a violation, other times they are reluctant to do this and they have good reasons not to. There is a whole big discussion that I know you have in mind on the separation of powers. Should courts be given such a, a great powers to say that uh, uh, legislation is incompatible with human rights law? So these are all uh, difficult questions that uh, they, you know, courts have them in mind uh, generally and the big uh, academic debate on these issues. Uh, but we, we cannot avoid this question that, you know, we, we, yeah, we cannot avoid these questions and courts cannot avoid these questions. They have to make uh, hard choices at times, unfortunately. I mean, I can certainly be convinced by that. Like I say, that there are, once you have that as your account, there are definitely questions to be asked of it. And, you know, we'll, we'll get to them in closing. But... I think this is sort of where something a bit like political philosophy helps in that if you're going to have a rights based account, it is sort of worth asking these questions. What is a right? Um, I, I usually don't use rights language, honestly, but when I do, I'll borrow from Cecile Tharp, who sort of describes them as like fundamental interests. So like what what like what base level sort of conditions would you want? really sort of irrespective of what your comprehensive life plan might be. And so I think a prohibition on torture would clearly fall into that. Um, other sorts of legal rules around, you know, the, the sort of criminal prosecutions and so on. But like, it seems to me if you're going to go with the view of rights as like fundamental interests in sort of having a free and autonomous life, I don't know, something like that, right? Yeah. Um, 
yeah, shelter's got to be in there, surely. Mm. Right, yeah. like, like that, that, like, if a right is like something that if you don't have it, you really are like not going to be able to freely make choices and have autonomy and and just sort of do whatever it is you might want to do with your life. Yeah, shelter's got to be in there, right? I would have thought healthcare. Yeah. You know, it's contingent on scarcity, obviously, but healthcare. Yeah. You'd, you'd assume um, that makes sense to me. It it run, it does run. I'll leave it to you to describe how much it runs counter to a sort of existing legal theory and practice. What I can say for sure is it runs headlong into how the general public thinks about rights claims. That's not how most people are thinking about it when you use the term. Maybe implicitly and subconsciously and whatever, but that's not how human rights claims are used in political discourse and um, just sort of general public usage. Like, like in in America, you know, it was considered quite a radical statement for Bernie Sanders to say healthcare is a right. Like, which seems quite vanilla almost to me, but I I I I can be carried along by the argument and then also keep in my head how utterly wild this is going to sound to a lot of people a lot of the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, to a lot of people in the US, uh, I suspect uh, that, uh, that's right. But I think, you know, if you talk to people, I don't know, in the United Nations uh, corridors, or if you talk to people, I don't know, in other countries, in uh, in, in, in European countries, in, uh, in African countries, in Asian countries, and you tell them, look, uh, housing is a human right. They may not uh, find it as uh, wild as uh, it, may, it, sound, it may sound to, to, an, to, to, to people in the United States or, or, in, you know, or if you talk to people in, uh, South, in other countries in, the, in America. So, um, uh, you know, in international human rights law, the first document, which is hugely influential, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, contains a range of these rights. Healthcare, uh, uh, education, housing, work, uh, all these things are there alongside the freedom of expression, the prohibition of torture, uh, the prohibition of forced labor. So there's no sharp dividing line at all. And uh, you referred a couple of times to the US, and yes, the US Constitution is different. It contains, it does not contain socioeconomic rights, but other constitutions, uh, I mentioned earlier the South African Constitution, they do contain um, economic and social rights, such as the right to housing, the right to healthcare, etc. So it uh, Yes, to people in the US, uh, they, they're not familiar with, they may not at all be at all familiar with this way of presenting uh, uh, an argument, but uh, elsewhere in the world, people will not find it as uh, as, as uh, challenging. I, I think in the UK, we would, we struggle with it too. I think the, we may be not quite as far gone as the US, but like, I think we have pretty like, high levels of like xenophobia and like racism and like like i said just this victorian moralizing attitude about the poor that can really can really make what to me often feel like quite obvious claims really counterintuitive to some people some of the time and so i said i can think of challenges to this 
this would be my central challenge or just thing to keep in mind and think about. And there's a reason I said the general public as opposed to like, the reason I said the general public is like, how do we or how should we think about it when these, when, when, if we want to make much more expansive rights claims, how they conflict, if and when those conflict with majority preferences in a democratic system. So, you know, to give a concrete example, and let's be the UK, um, conservative politicians, and this isn't just a Brexit thing, this goes way back, will often portray human rights lawyers as the villains in their story. They are trying to enact what they claim are public preferences for more restrictive immigration rules or enforcement. But these, you know, pesky human rights lawyers keep taking them to court to stop them. Um, and that, I mean, that story, whether we think the story is true or not, that is kind of the heart of the Brexit debate, isn't it? Like, the public wanted less immigration. We had conservative governments like Cameron going out and promising to reduce immigration to levels that they, they, they had to have known they couldn't conceivably do, both because the UK economy structurally depends on them, but also because there's absolutely no way you could reduce immigration. I think they promised in the election manifesto to get it down to 20,000 at some point which there's just no way you can do that within the legal realities of EU membership. So that was just a case in which we had these sort of liberal, in a classical liberal sense, rules and a democratic preference that we really just don't like foreigners. And it's the democratic preference that won out there. Um, but how should we think about that? Because at some point, someone could turn around and say, OK, look, you've got this nice rights theory, but like if the majority of people want something else, shouldn't that count for something? That, 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 that's the challenge, yeah. I guess. Absolutely. I think, uh, yes, I'm sorry, the government doesn't like to be challenged when it treats people unfairly. You know, they want to send asylum seekers to Rwanda and people say this is inhuman treatment. Uh, they don't like being challenged, but it is true that it is inhuman treatment and that they should be doing it. So I, I, I appreciate that they don't like it, but you know, this is exactly anyway. This is exactly why we have a human rights law, and we want to have and keep human rights law because human rights law could be used to support people, could be used by people anyway, could be used by people who are not represented in politics because they are in the minority. You know, human rights law protects minorities from the oppression of majorities because they are not uh, represented in politics at, at all. Um, human rights law is exactly can help to give voice uh, to minorities and uh, you know vulnerable other vulnerable groups and, and other groups who don't who are not represented in uh, politics. The UK government, you mentioned Brexit, the UK government, they want to stop immigration. At the same time, they, are, they, they have huge uh, labour shortages now. They don't know how we can pick the strawberries and all this. There are all these uh, labour shortages in our agriculture. And they wanted to, some of them want to stop immigration at all. I don't know what they want to do about uh, the, the agriculture and horticulture in the country. Others say, no, we are going to bring in foreigners, migrants but uh, we will only let them work in a specific farm uh, 
under bad conditions, we don't care about them. Um, insofar as they do the work where we have a shortages, or they say, yeah, meatpacking, there are labor shortages in the meatpacking industry, let's get the prisoners to do the meatpacking that no one else wants, wants to do. They want to, to use people who are either not paid at all or really badly underpaid, who cannot, who, who are excluded from society for a lot of uh, other reasons, migrant, uh, seasonal workers, prisoners and others. To do the worst, some some bad, some very difficult, uh, dangerous, bad jobs, underpaying them or not paying them at all. This is just something that we should not allow. A just society should not accept. Uh, and if we can use human rights law to address uh, some of these unjust uh, policies, uh, we should. Uh, we should use other ways uh, to address some of these unjust policies. Workers uh, should be unionized. Uh, there is no question. But uh, the problem with, uh, say, seasonal workers is that they don't have time to unionize. It's very hard to unionize them when they are only here for a few months. Uh, it's very hard to unionize workers in agriculture because uh, they because they work in very remote locations, etc. Migrant workers are often also with an insecure status, are often uh, afraid to, 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 to provoke the authorities, I don't know, the employers, they don't want to unionize. So when we think that people uh, are uh, treated unjustly, and some of the, cate the categories of workers that I'm talking about they are treated unjustly because they are excluded from a range of uh, workers' rights and other human rights, then we should think how, how we can challenge these rules. We can challenge them by campaigning. NGOs do fantastic work in campaigning for a lot of these categories of workers that I discussed, and so do trade unions. If we can use human rights law to challenge rules that are unjust, and that create vulnerability to exploitation and that are connected to structures of exploitation, we should use human rights law to do that. It has been used successfully and uh, that's why the government uh, don't like uh, all the lefty, what they call lefty lawyers, but uh, this is what uh, has to be done when the government treats vulnerable people unjustly, when the legislation treats vulnerable people unjustly. Let me, okay, we're, we're coming up on time here, but let me let me give you a hypothetical case, because I think in the real world case, there's a lot of complications and qualifiers. So certainly there's just this contradiction between, let's just call it economic and social conservatism, between like we want cheap exploitable labour, but also we don't like foreigners. Like, you know, obviously there's a contradiction there. And then obviously when it comes to like issues of public support for all of this, like I say, I think it's complicated. I think people will agree with it in the abstract, but not in the specific. I also just think the British public believes a whole lot about immigration and asylum that is just flatly untrue because we've had a right wing press misleading them about it for quite some time now. Here's my challenge. Let me challenge myself here. Yes, Toby, all that is true. What you're kind of still doing is you're explaining away public preferences that you don't like. Let us say that we decided between me and you that Sandy does have a human right to not be homeless and that there is a state responsibility to enforce it. And let us say we live in that world. I can well imagine 
that in that world, if we didn't also in that world change underlying public attitudes, like I say, this Victorian moralizing blame the poor, there may well be a majority preference in the electorate that actually we do not want to pay taxes to support Sandy not being homeless, that we think X, Y or Z, you can fill in the blanks. Um, so that's that's the kind of thing I'm trying to tease out is, yes. is like in the real world, you can always sort of qualify and say it's complicated because it always is complicated. But sometimes there will just be a zero sum conflict. And I guess I'll give my answer away in advance is, yeah, sometimes democracy will lose to liberalism. Sometimes liberalism will and should lose to democracy. Um, but I'll, I'll let you go at that. Like, I want to just push you hard on like, OK, but when they really do conflict, what then? Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely understand what you're saying. Uh, you're concerned, but, uh, you know, the public clearly has a preference here. The majority clearly has a preference here. Um, um, but you also said uh, earlier that uh, often they are misled. Mm -hmm. I am very concerned about that. You also said earlier uh, as well that uh, sometimes uh, um, uh, in general they say, yeah, domestic workers, yes, the visa, this for instance, mm. this visa is uh, fine, they only come in for a few months, that's okay, and uh, it's okay if they're tied to the employer. But you, you also said uh, earlier that then, but when the public then reads stories of concrete, of real people who have, uh, you know, suffered very badly, who have not never been paid by the, their employer, who are locked up in the employer's home while the employer goes shopping to fancy stores, who are not, uh, who are ill-treated in numerous ways and who, are, who then become undocumented. If they, if they hear stories of people like that or people on universal credit, people who seek uh, social support for uh, in order to meet their basic needs uh, but then they're faced with a huge bureaucracy a very punitive uh, system that uh, leads them to not knowing whether they can uh, afford uh, a bit of food or uh, to buy a you know to, to, to buy to, to heating uh, or the most basic things um, when they hear stories of real people and they realize that it's not just a story or one story but the reality is that these are patterns i think that uh, they will think again i mean that's why also on a separate issue it has to do with uh, the way we approach these uh, things that's why i also think that uh, um, political philosophy political theory is uh, wonderful and so is uh, legal academic analysis and everything but empirical research is also crucial so that we see the effects that these legal rules have uh, on people's lives and uh, I don't know perhaps by bringing to light uh, these kind of stories uh, and the patterns that exist that are due to the, our uh, legal rules that have an appearance of legitimacy, then maybe more people will be persuaded that these rules, uh, what we thought was our preference, uh, was uh, in fact unjust. Uh, so in some senses, your answer to 
what happens when liberalism and democracy clash is liberalism has to do the work of convincing people, like pointing out where they've been misled, bringing attention to particular stories. Like we, we have to, if there's a public preference the other way and we think that preference is wrong, we have to do the work of like making that case. Is, is that a fair summary? We as uh, say academics, for instance, doing empirical, doing research in these areas, we definitely have a, a duty to do that, to try to reach out to the public, uh, to you know, and explain the story. Not only you know, journalists uh, have a duty to do that, uh, to explain to the public who don't have uh, enough, you know, people don't have enough time to research everything. We have uh, a duty, I guess, uh, you know, those of us who want to anyway, we have a duty to explain these things to people and bring them to light and make uh, and uh, engage with the public, uh, um, uh, share our expertise uh, in order to um, uh, help them, you know, in order to uh, see where uh, some of the policies that, you know, the democratically elected uh, legislature and the government enact. Uh, so, yes. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, in my counter example, I'm um, assuming um, uh, a government with a clear democratic mandate to pursue its policies, which is perhaps not 100% the case at the moment. <laughs> yeah, um, well, right now in the UK, yeah, it's a, a quite a challenging time in terms of democratic politics. So, yeah. That's another story. All right, let's wrap it there. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Are there any... Um, Anything in closing you want to touch on that you feel we missed? Uh, I don't think so. We discussed a lot of issues. It was a really interesting discussion. Thanks very much. And uh, I, yeah, I really enjoyed discussing and uh, being challenged and being asked questions. Thank you very much. No, no, thank you for coming on. Tell our listeners um, where should they go? The book won't be out for a bit yet, but if they want to follow you, where should they go? You're on, you're on Twitter, aren't you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm sure I shouldn't be because, but anyway, yes, I'm on Twitter. But uh, the book will be out by Oxford University Press in February 2023. Okay. And uh, yeah, so if anyone wants uh, to access it, this is how they can access it. Cool. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks very much, Toby.